Did you turn out with the hundreds of other Sydney siders to watch the Olympic torch relay prior to the Sydney 2000 Olympics, assuming you lived in the country at the time? It was a brief and short-lived moment, accompanied by lots of cheering for the runner. But it was something to get excited about. We were excited because of what the torch meant, that in a matter of days, the long-anticipated Olympics would begin in Sydney. Our excitement wasn't just to see the runner and the torch, it was also the anticipation that something big was ahead. Well, anticipation of something big is the backdrop of this section's Uh, of Luke's gospel today. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. Jericho is only 25 kilometres away. For months, Jesus has been doing and saying things that have led some people to correctly conclude that he is the long-promised, long-anticipated Messiah or Christ. The king God had promised would be the descendant of King David, as we saw in our 2 Samuel 7 reading then, who would bring in a rule marked by justice, peace from enemies and all the prosperity that follows from that. Living under their Roman overlords, the people of Palestine were very keen for that king to come. And so for the Jews, the capital of of the king, always being Jerusalem, they were keen for the king to come to town. With Jesus heading there, they've put two and two together and anticipating that they're going to see God's powerful king deal with the Roman enemies and restore Jerusalem to its rightful place among the nations. But, problem, they don't have God's mind, they don't know God's plans, they are anticipating the wrong thing. If they'd heard Jesus teach his disciples on the journey toward Jerusalem, they would have heard him say this, and that would have saved them from the mistake. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. As we'll see uh, in next week's passage, when when Jesus finally does come into Jerusalem, it is as king, but not on the fine white charger of some victorious general, but on a humble young donkey. The things he's going to do when he comes, involving being handed over to the Gentiles, crucified, and rise again, they're really, really big things, but they're not the coming of the kingdom in all its fullness. So this week, Jesus moves to dampen down the wrong expectations and set out some right expectations. The kingdom is not coming yet. What really matters is how people live until the king and his kingdom arrive. So verse 11 there on page 902 While they're listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now, we know Jesus likes to teach in parables and parables generally involve an important spiritual point 
set inside a story of everyday things. Often the subject matter of Jesus' parables is observations from uh, everyday life in that agricultural economy. So there's seeds sown and there's houses built on sea, sand or rock and there's, there's sheep and there's goats and there's travellers and robbers. But this parable seems to be partly influenced by a political historical event When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, he divided his kingdom up amongst the three of his sons that he hadn't killed. Each of his sons had to go to Rome to have their rule recognised by the Roman emperor. The son called Achilles, or Archelaus, was left Judea, which includes Judea, sorry, which includes Jericho and Jerusalem. And he reigned there from 4 BC to AD 6, but he was never granted the title king. He was a very mean ruler, and the people sent representatives to Rome to ask that he not be given the kingdom. Well, the emperor confirmed him in the place of authority, but refused to give him the title king until he proved himself worthy of it. He never did. And he actually ended up being removed by the emperor in AD 6 because of a deputation of Jewish and Samaritan aristocracy who went to Rome and told the emperor there is going to be a full-scale revolt in the territory against Archelaus unless he's removed. And after that, so they took, they got rid of him. He wasn't ruling well enough. And from then on, the Romans appointed prefix prefects or governors in Judea, the best known of them, you know, is Pontius Pilate. Pilate would have been ruling, actually, when Jesus told this parable. And I can't help thinking that Jesus remembered the the story of of Archelaus from when he was a boy, and that that's influenced some of the details in this parable we have for us here in Luke 19. Jesus tells the parable because he knows he won't be bringing in the kingdom when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows he'll be dying for sin so people can join the kingdom, that he'll be raised again, but he'll ascend to heaven until the time is right to finally return and judge who his people are and who they aren't and establish the kingdom forever. The resurrection signals that Jesus is definitely the King, the Christ, the Messiah, but he must first go to the distant country to live in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And in the interval till Jesus returns, it isn't time for us to sit on our hands waiting for him to come back. There's work to do. We're to be working in the family business. That's the point. Of this parable. So I want to look with you at the key facts of the parable. And as I do, I want you to ask yourself which character am I most like? A nobleman is preparing to go away and have himself appointed king of his country and then return. His preparations involve leaving his servants a task they can work at while he's away. Look at verse 13. He calls the ten of his servants, ten of his servants, and gives them. Ten miners, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. There are ten servants, 
But we only interestingly hear about three of them. But that's enough to get the point that some servants are faithful and do what their master commands. They work for the family business. They invest the money in some business enterprises. One makes a gain of 1,000% on the investment and the other makes 500%. It's interesting that each of those servants are rewarded with more work, more responsibility. You take 10 cities to manage, you take five cities to manage. They do that, of course, on behalf of their master, the new king. The third servant is lazy and disobedient. He was told to put this money to work, but he doesn't. Instead, he ties up the miner in his hanky and hides it in his underpants drawer. Do you feel sorry for this servant? People often do. It seems like he's a bit of an anxious, a, a bit of a worrier, and you feel sympathy when he says in verse 20, here's your miner, I, I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You, you take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. He, we feel sorry for him because he, he, was, he was fearful of his master and in his fear, he, was that his motivation? Was it fear? Since when, though, has fear led to apathy? Fear should lead to obedience. Yet this servant did nothing. And the master sees right through the flimsy excuse. Look at verse 22. I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then? Did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? The the master's obviously a landowner and he makes his income by taking and reaping from crops other people have sown. It sounds like this master has tenant farmers on all or some of his land. The tenant farmers do all the work, but in return... For using the land of the landowner, they have to give a share of the crops to the landowner as their rent. Now, the servant knew that's the way his master runs the business. He knew that the master makes money through other people's labour. So he should have tried to make an effort himself. He should have done something to at least double or triple the coin, as the master says, you could have at least gone down to the bank. But this servant really didn't fear the master. He ignored, or worse, envied and resented the master. Hiding it in a hanky isn't the actions of someone who fears his master. The servant's true colours have been revealed He's not really a servant of this master. He's a servant of himself. And that's why the miner is taken away from the wicked servant, the lazy servant, and given to the one with ten. The one with ten has demonstrated that he's trustworthy to work hard in the master's business. It's not here the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer like some end-of-year bonus for an overpaid CEO of a top 100 company. No, this wicked servant has nothing to show 
for his role as servant. He hasn't acted as a servant, so he actually loses his position. Verse 26, everyone who has, more will be given, but for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The one thing this man had was his status as a servant of the master, and now that's taken away. That the master makes that judgment shouldn't surprise us, should us? He's basically sacked on the spot. Of course, they didn't have to delay to avoid wrongful dismissal accusations in those days. So who do you identify with in this parable? All Christians are servants of the king. We have a king who we're called to serve. We, we call him Lord and we obey our Lord. We're called to work in the family business. So what, what does that mean for us? What do these uh, minors represent in reality for us as, as Christ's servants? I think it's all we have. It's our lives and everything we have. Maybe it is money, but it's time, it's talents and abilities, it's energy, it's intellect, it's skill. What, whatever you have has been given to you by God, just like the minor was given to each of the servants. Whatever you have can be used to serve Jesus and the family business. We can put it all to work in obeying Jesus. And, and what has Jesus left us to do while he's away? What does working in the family business with our minors involve? Well, think of his commands. If we're to obey the Lord, what, what are we to do? What has he told us to do? Well, love your neighbour as well as you love yourself. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them uh, to obey everything I have taught you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your enemies and do good for them. Pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Some of the the obvious ones that we can easily think of, aren't they, that Jesus has commanded us. Imagine standing before Jesus when he returns and he asks you, what have you done with the minor that he gave you, with the life that he's given you? What, what will you point to? As I look out upon you, I know that many of you will be able to, be able to point to lovingly served at church. Or to the money you've given to help other people hear about Jesus through CMS or BCA or Anchor RE. Or the giving you've done to the Archbishop's Drought Relief Fund. Or the time you've put into preparing for your growth group or your youth group Bible study so as to love and grow your members. Or the effort you've made cooking a meal for a family with a new baby. Or your sharing about your faith with someone at work who's asked why when they heard you attended church today or you're inviting your friend to the men's dinner last night. You're organising it in Chris's case. Or there, there are so many ways, aren't they, in which so many of you serve Jesus' work of loving others and growing his kingdom. And one day Jesus will say, well done, my good servant, or words to that effect. So be encouraged and keep it up. Of course, if you're someone who can't point to 
doing anything in the service of Jesus, then be glad you're here today because this Bible passage is a gift for you. It's not too late to become serious about serving Jesus, about loving people, about loving even your enemies because Jesus has loved you and laid down his life for you. It's not too late to evaluate how you spend your time, money or energy and ensure that you're dedicated to serving the growing of Jesus' kingdom, the family business. And if, but if you're not sure where to serve well, and you want to do so, last week we handed out the contact and involvement forms for 2019. Have a look at the involvement things that are listed on the back of that form or talk to me or Dave. Here's a suggestion. I want you all to fill in the statement, fill in the blank in this statement with at least one thing in your life. I blank because I live as a servant of Jesus. I'm just going to pause again. I blank because I live as a servant of Jesus. The answer will be something that involves time or money or energy, preparation, effort, or all of them. I blank because I live as a servant of Jesus. From the servants, let's move to the enemies of the master. Not much is made of the master's enemies in the parable, but enough is made to make it worth spending 30 seconds on them. The thing that makes them enemies is their attitude to him. Look at verse 14. We don't want this man to be our king. Of course, in those days, kings were very brutal with their enemies. And so the last verse of our parable involves the killing of the enemies of the king who originally opposed his appointment. And it comes as a bit of a shock when you're reading. Why is it that having clearly made his point about his servants and about being servants while Jesus is away, why does Jesus add this verse on at the end? Well, it's a reminder that God's king is also God's judge. Remember those words we looked at recently from Paul the Apostle that he said to the crowd in Athens in Acts 17? God has set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The risen Jesus will be the judge when he returns. He'll judge who are his true servants and not. He'll judge those who are his enemies. In the Bible, it's being an enemy, rejecting him as king, not treating him as king, that gets you in strife with him. When he returns, he'll judge who are his servants and who are his enemies. The person who won't accept him as Lord and submit to him as servant won't be welcomed into eternity because when they had the chance, they rejected relationship with the king, the relationship that extends into eternity. And that's a choice people make. If you're someone who doesn't recognise Jesus as king in your life, feel, feel the... Uh, the gravity of the verse 
at the end of this parable. It's not too late. Come back. Come back and be a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. Sometimes I obey and serve because he tells me to. And I'd feel guilty if I didn't. Other times it's because I find great joy in serving. Seeing people help to grow or to feel better in their situation or or knowing my money has helped a missionary in serving Christ. But most of all, when it comes to serving the Lord, the thing that motivates me most of all is I want to hear Jesus use words of me like those in the parable. Well done, my good servant. If you're a servant but you find yourself flagging at times in your zeal or purpose because it feels like Jesus is taking a very long time or the work just goes on and on, remember these words. Let them motivate you. Well done, my good servant. Imagine yourself hearing that from Jesus. Let me pray.